Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I am joined by Andrea Moore. She is a sommelier and also the general manager over at Commune here in Columbus, Ohio. So we've had a couple of people on from Commune in the past. We've had Jacob Inscore, who was the second executive chef at the restaurant. He's now out in New York. I think he was helping open... Margot in Brooklyn. Matt Harper, who is the current executive chef. He came by way of Philly and Baltimore. And then we've also had Joe Galati, who is one of the two owners of the restaurant too as well, all on the podcast previously. So if you never listen to any of those episodes, make sure to do so. That way you can get some background on Commune basically from when it was conceptualized to kind of being a pop-up almost and like a farmer's market setting to where it is now, which was named uh, this past year, the number one restaurant in the city by Columbus Monthly. So Andrea is relatively new to the restaurant. Uh, been there almost a year now, coming up on a year. And uh, she's made some changes and we talked to her about kind of what changes she's implemented, how she approached the wine list without alienating kind of the loyal fan base, how difficult it is to kind of prep for you know a nice day when the patio might be open or it could rain and the patio would be closed like how they approach that and everything so and we also talk about her career you know how she got into wine Uh, her and her husband moved down to austin kind of randomly for a while and wound up staying there for like nine years or something like that um and what she did kind of down there when she was working and how they found their way back and how she first got into wine and kind of where she's headed and and next things for her too as well so you can follow her on instagram it's at Andrea M underscore Seabus and also follow the restaurant too, of course, at commune underscore restaurant. And that's commune with one M. So C-O-M-U-N-E underscore restaurant. Follow us on Instagram too as well. We're at Spoon Mob. And follow us on other social media, but primarily we use Instagram. We're not on threads. We're not going to be on threads. Please don't ask me to get on threads because I'm not doing it. We have a Twitter account. Don't really use it. Kind of abandoned Twitter. We do some stuff on Reddit here or there. My feelings are pretty well documented on Reddit um, and, and kind of where that's headed. And it's getting, seems to be getting worse. You know, we've done some stuff on TikTok and stuff too, but uh, primarily it's Instagram. I prefer photos. Uh, I don't really care too much about video content right now. I like photos. I like still photos. I think they capture the spirit of the thing. And, uh, you know, a photo is worth a thousand words is kind of the cliche saying. But, you know, I think when you actually sit and look at a photo, a really well taken photo, different lighting and textures and detail, I think it's more inspirational and enjoyable than anything that you're going to find in in video. Um, So I consume video, but I have zero interest in producing uh, video right now. So if that changes in the future, everyone will know about it. But for right now, pretty heavy on the Instagram. Uh, you can check out our website too as well. It's spoonmob.com. We have different profiles for everybody, all our guests. Um, all the pages are up there. So there's wine photos, food photos, restaurant photos, uh, contact information on where to find people. If you need to connect with them or whatever, you want to follow them, you forget what their Instagram handle was, it's all up there. Um, links to all the episodes too as well. So there's a master page with running order of all the episodes. And then if you go into the individual person's page, we also put links there too as well. That'll take you right to the episode. Speaking of links to the episodes, you can find us on any major podcast platform. Most everybody uses Apple and Spotify. We have the links in our Instagram bio. We also put them out um, in our posts, but you can also go on the platform and just search at Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob and it'll come up. You'll see our orange logo. 
Amazon Music, we're on there. You can find us on Audible. Uh, people use YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. All the episodes come out on YouTube a week after they hit all the podcast apps. But if that's your preferred player, we put it up there for you as well. And um, just make sure to follow or subscribe. Click the little check mark and all the new episodes that uh, come out. They'll just drop straight in your feed pretty much every Thursday. Um, we have new episodes. If we have some mini update episodes with a returning guest, sometimes those come out on Thursdays, sometimes those come out on Tuesdays. It just kind of depends on what we got going on. There's really no set schedule, but it'd be one of those two days when we have one. But all new episodes drop Thursday, 1 a.m. Eastern time. So if you're in Pacific time, that'll be Wednesday at 10. If you're out in Hawaii, because uh, we had a few Hawaiian guests on, um, that's going to put you at about, I think, 7 o'clock on Wednesday because um, they're about six hours behind. So it just kind of depends on your time zone. If you're in Singapore, that's like uh, going to be Friday at like 1 p.m. is when it drops. So, But yeah, make sure to follow, subscribe, and check us out there um, for all the past episodes too as well. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with General Manager Andrea Moore, the SOM General Manager and kind of Wine Director of Commune here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your day, your morning, to jump on here and talk about wine and your career and, and everything like that. So you are now over at Commune, which last year was named the best restaurant in Columbus uh, by the Columbus Monthly Restaurant Rankings that they have. It's been one of our favorite restaurants for a long time. We've been going there for a number of years, so it's cool to see it kind of evolve and get towards taking that next step. But I want to get into how you wound up at Commune and everything you're doing there. But I always like to start at the beginning with everyone. So how did you kind of first get involved with wine? Because you spent like a decade or like 12 years in customer service before you wound up getting into the world of wine. So how did all that happen? Well, I took an interest in it just as a consumer, like most people do. You know, some people go and order a beer or a cocktail and I always ordered wine. And then it kind of funneled and got a little bit more serious when my husband and I moved to the Grandview area and uh, the little wine bar, the Twisted Vine, had pretty recently just opened up. They had a really good program there. They had good leaders um, and they did weekly flights where I got exposed to a much larger breadth of wine. So I was there every Thursday night with a group tasting, you know, at a wine bar and I just kind of fell in love with it. I realized like how big it could be and just decided to get out of the, the office nine to five Monday through Friday thing and take a leap and just see what happens. With your kind of previous career, we'll call it, did you have any vision of where you were kind of headed out of school or whatever, how you kind of wound up in customer service? Did you see it going anywhere in that field or were you just kind of in there and doing just kind of the day to day and whatever happened, happened? Definitely doing the day to day. I mean, the roles I had suited me well because I'm a very type A person. I'm extremely organized. I, I like when I'm given tasks and I can just execute them. So like my day to day wasn't that bad, but I definitely didn't have a vision of like, oh, I'm going to run this company or I'm going to be handling workers comp for the rest of my life. It was just something that paid the bills and got me to point B. Like I did get right into the workforce after high school. I skipped college and, you know, for a long time, I beat myself up over that. I felt like I probably should have tried harder to go. And in hindsight, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was 24 or 25 years old. So I didn't really stumble in this career path until I got into my late 20s and 30. And there's just, there's no way I could have known that as an 18 year old in high school. So I'm actually pretty grateful I didn't, you know, go and take some sort of like management course. <laughs> 
um, that would have ended up being a little irrelevant to my career path. So in high school, had you ever worked in a restaurant or anything, like any prior restaurant experience until you get involved with wine? I don't think worth mentioning. I mean, I, I worked at a pizza shop like I think everybody in high school did. Um, so I guess there was a little bit of kitchen experience, but nothing as far as like service or fine dining. It was all new. So what led to you taking a part-time like wine sales associate job at Wyland's Market? What led to you seeking that out and taking that on? I knew I wanted to change something. Again, there wasn't much of a vision with the career path I was on. And I knew I was going to have to take a serious step back in terms of like pay and professionalism just to get a foot in the door. So I was just on Craigslist, you know, looking for part-time wine jobs, thinking maybe I could balance the two and then had an interview with Wylands that ended up going pretty well. And it was more of like, they kind of needed me during the day through the week. So I just put in my two weeks notice and I'm like, okay, like, you know, my husband and I had the capacity for me to take that move at that time. We just went for it. I mean, that's pretty much it. I, it was a good place for me to land to start because I, I think Wylands has a really good wine selection for this area. They have a lot to choose from. Then they have good people running their program. So I was able to learn, you know, just kind of come in with a general interest, but no real background and just be shown that side of the in- industry for a year or so. At that point, had you done any research or any reading or anything on your own about wine, the wine industry or anything? Or were you just kind of like, I'm going to go and see kind of what they can teach me and let it kind of snowball from there? Reading for sure. I mean, prior to that, I was hosting tastings at my house on Sundays. Like I just wanted everybody I knew to be interested in like I was. So we would do themed tastings on Sundays where everybody brought a certain bottle and you know, it was a way really selfishly for me to taste a ton of stuff too, but I was trying to like get everybody involved. So yeah, there was a fair amount of like study and reading that came before me taking any sort of professional jump. Um, but it wasn't until I got into an environment where I needed to sell these things. Like I needed to know these wines. I needed to be able to sell them where I was like, I need to, I need to step up. Like I definitely have to take this to the next level. And then I found the, the course through the Society of Wine Educators for a Certified Specialist of Wine self-study, which is great for me because I'm a self-motivated person and I organize very well. So I kind of laid out a study program for myself over the next year, uh, signed up for an exam at the end of that year and just gave myself these like goals to meet along the way. So it was like when I got to Wylands, when everything started to get much more regimented and I realized this is serious. I do want to do this. And, you know, just had my nose in a book for like a year. <laughs> so at that point, when you decide to take the exam with Society of Wine, did you know about CMS, the court, and then WSET2? Do you look into those at all? Or was it this one allows me to do kind of self-study where the other two, I believe at that point, you still had to physically like go to class. You know, now they've kind of changed, I think, the level one stuff where you can kind of do a remote. Um, I knew about CMS. It didn't seem like it applied to me at the time. I wasn't in service. And to me, being a sommelier is very much restaurant oriented. It's very much like the act of serving somebody wine, all the, all the you know steps that go into that. Um, and I just wasn't doing that at the time. I was, again, you know, use, leaning into my customer service and working in retail. And the, the CSW seemed like a really good baseline. It seemed like a good place to start. I didn't know at that point if I was going to, you know, try to do the 
CWE, the certified wine educator, or if I would go into CMS at some point, but I just kind of started there. Like, and I'm really glad I did. I think it's a pretty in-depth program for anybody that can just like buy the study materials and decide they want to do it. What was the most challenging part of the exam for you? Was there a specific area or region that you kind of studied extra hard on? Because the whole thing is, you know, just an exam that there's no tasting or anything. So was there a certain part of it that was more challenging than others for you? I was extremely well prepared. I thought it was fine. I don't want to say easy because it took a lot of time to prep. But if I had to say there's an area that at that point was a little bit of a blind spot for me, it would have been Burgundy. You know, lots of us don't get the opportunity to drink Burgundy. It's a little out of the price range of a wine clerk in, you know, Clintonville. So if anything, I'd say Burgundy, I historically just fluttered a little bit on because I just don't have the experience drinking it. After like year and a half or so, you wind up going out west to do a harvest at Motion Vineyards in Healdsburg, California. What led to that adventure? How did all that materialize? I think I was just in an adventurous stage of life. Like I just, I felt like I I took this small step away from, you know, what I thought was going to be long-term stability or or what had been long-term stability and things were going well and I was happier. And I just started to think, like, what's next? I want to do something else. The aspect of study that was really interesting to me was winemaking and viticulture and everything that happens like before it gets into the bottle and to the consumer. So I think somebody maybe in my you know colleague group mentioned doing a harvest and it piqued my interest. Um, I got on the UC Davis's website and just started looking for app- you know, applications I could fill out. Uh, Motion called me for an interview and I was I was ecstatic. I was like, yeah, Russian River, perfect. Uh, you know, at that point, I was like, I, I was ready to leave Wylands. I had a really good run there, but I was ready for something else. And my husband and I were talking about leaving Columbus and just kind of moving around for a while and trying some other things. So everything just kind of lined up. Like we drove, we took a, an epic road trip out to California. He left me there with my car, flew back, sold our condo and most of our stuff and moved like a little box trailer to Austin, Texas with like a few of our <laughs> remaining belongings while I was doing this this internship. He flew up and we drove to Texas. It was just like, it was this two month, three month whirlwind of just everything is different. So I don't know, it kind of oddly fit into our plan. So when you're at the harvest, Lauren Noel, who's a psalm in Columbus here, she's at Spec in the bottle shop. She does a lot of harvest. She's been to a couple and she kind of routinely does them. But were you going through the whole thing, picking, processing, crushing, bottling, all that? Or were you on one kind of aspect of that process? Everything except for vineyard management. So they had their their own pickers that they've used for I, since they've been making wine in, I don't know, 1989 or whatever. Um, so it was everything from the crush pad through the cellar aging, essentially, because I, I really wasn't around long enough to see a lot of bottling. So yeah, sorting grapes punchovers, racking, getting things out of the tank into barrel, cleaning the presses. Like it was pretty much every everything a, a grunt intern is asked to do. <laughs> was there one part of that that you enjoyed more than the others? Yeah, oddly enough, I really liked cleaning the presses. <laughs> it was the job that everybody else hated to do because it was so tedious to like pick all the little seeds out of all the places they get stuck. And But it was, for me, a moment of zen. It was like a very high intensity workspace you know there was just like huge equipment everywhere and all this like dangerous stuff happening and oh here's like you know 12 more tea bins of grapes we're all really stressed out this is so much today and i could go into the press and just be alone 
for like 15 minutes and power wash some stuff. So it was a reprieve from kind of like the stress of everything else. Like you said, after that, you guys kind of land in Austin, Texas. Was there a specific reason why Austin, Texas? Or did you throw a dart at a map? Like, how did you kind of wind up there versus, you know, anywhere else, California or someplace that has like a wine scene? It was driven by uh, my husband. So he was an avid BMXer. Um, and Austin, Texas has, you know, probably, if not the best, one of the best BMX scenes in the country. And he had been uh, two times before traveling just, to, you know, to ride his bike and knew some people down there. And it was, he really liked it. So I had never been, I moved, I got their site unseen, um, but he had a little bit of familiarity with it and just thought it would be a good place to go for a little while. We ended up staying a lot longer than we thought. We were going to be there for six months. And much like Austin pulls in everybody for longer than they think we were there for nine years. So. When you get there, did you have any set places that you wanted to either work at or try and work at experience or, or whatever before you kind of wound up where you did? Um, I got there and applied just everywhere. I was applying at restaurants, even though I had never worked in one. I was applying to Austin Wine Merchant right away. A couple of other smaller wine shops I went and had meetings with. It was brand new. It actually took me a little while to find a good work home. Um, a friend who was waiting tables at this Italian restaurant called La Traviata, and she's like, you should just go in and, you know, they always need help. Like, you're, you could totally do this. You're trainable. So... I just showed up one day wearing all black. They're just like, yeah, just kind of like, they hadn't even ever met me, but I just showed up wearing all black and they trained me how to be a server. And that was like my intro into the into the restaurant industry. I started working lunches. They're a little slower, you know, for a newbie like me. It ended up being my work home for the next six years. Just again, kind of a weird like Hail Mary <laughs> move that ended up working out. Over that course of that six years that you're there, was there a, a moment that you can kind of pinpoint that you kind of fell in love with the aspect of hospitality or anything like that? I loved it immediately. And I was nervous because I, you know, operate with a little bit of anxiety as well, because I like everything to be so perfect. So I was really nervous about going into a restaurant thinking like, uh, I don't think while well on my feet, what if I like, I don't know, what if I drop something? What if I do this? Like, or what if I just don't like it? And it was an instant, like, this is awesome. I love hospitality. I love being around food. I love being around drink. So yeah, I was so excited to stay and, and work my way up. I probably just served there and like honed service skills for the first maybe eight months or so, maybe six months until the GM at the time asked me to start weighing in on the wine program and kind of take that off of his plate. And then eventually I just took it over completely. And, you know, going back to my kind of customer service administrative background, I realized pretty quickly as well that a lot of people in the service industry don't come from that. They don't have that sort of operational, like holistic view of a business. So it was kind of a natural transition for me to just assume those roles in a restaurant because at this point it's like, all right, and now I understand how it works on the floor, but not everybody else here that's like killing it on the floor understands how it works in administration. It was kind of a, a natural transition. Being a GM and essentially wine director for the first time at this restaurant, been there for six years, what was kind of the biggest challenge with handling both those roles simultaneously, but also for you the first time in you know a restaurant setting? You know, anytime you have a GM that's coupled with some sort of beverage director position, they're 
both aspects are going to suffer for each other at some point. And I don't think it was off balance the entire time I, I was there. It wasn't like, oh, I'm doing so much admin work. I don't have time for wine or I can't. I'm doing so much wine work. I can't go to interviews and hire people. Like I kept it pretty well balanced. But the the difficult part is just juggling the two and making sure that they're both getting the attention they need. I was really lucky to have an amazing staff for the most, you know, for almost all six years I was there, the people we hired, we brought on, like we had, we just had a great group and I don't like to micromanage. Like I don't like to tell people what to do. I just want everybody to come in and do their best. And they did that. So they really make my life extremely easy too. Going back to challenges though, from the wine side, I've been lucky to not encounter a lot from colleagues, peers, other wine professionals. The most challenging part about, you know, acting as a floor som is in, especially in Texas, being a 35-year-old woman. <laughs> and I, I'm not trying to play a part or anything, but it was just, it, it took a long time for people to want to take me seriously. In 2017, you wind up passing uh, the certified sommelier exam with the court there. So what kind of led you to wanting to do that exam with CMS? Was it because you're working in restaurants now or did you just want to kind of see how far you could go or what was kind of your logic in, in taking that exam? It was definitely because now I was in restaurants and I thought I needed another educational tool. Like I needed another aspect to this industry. And um, the CMS was very, very much large like self-study for me as well. I formed a little study group in Austin that we did tastings, you know, blind tastings every Sunday so I could practice with other people. But for the most part, it was me and like 1500 flashcards at home, you know, with just a lot of repetition, a lot of tasting. But the thing I'll say about the CMS is that they're, they give you everything you need. Their study guides are very thorough. They offer a lot of in-person courses for deductive tasting. There's just a lot of resources. It's a big organization. So I just wanted to tap into those resources and make myself better rounded. Which of the three aspects, theory, service, tasting, which was the most challenging for you? Service by a long haul. The tasting was so much easier than I could have imagined. I was preparing for them to throw us like wild curveballs that were going to be impossible to get. But I just felt like every single one, I was like, oh, I know exactly what this is. Maybe I got lucky. Maybe I had like a good day. The theory, I realized after I took theory that I was definitely studying at an advanced level instead of a certified level. It was a breeze compared to the types of things I was trying to memorize and be able to recall. So I was like, I felt really good after both of those sections. And then the third one for me was service. It was my last, my last one of the day. And I walked out of there thinking like, there's no way I passed. <laughs> I think I, I think I texted my husband and I'm just like, it's over. There's like, there's no way. The reason it's stressful for me is because I was woefully underprepared for cocktail questions. I was so ready to answer like anything the administrators, the MSs were going to ask me about wine. And I did. I did very well. The act of service, I think I did very well, you know, carrying or acting flutes. It was all good. But then they started to ask me questions about cocktails and I had to, to defer on every single one because I didn't know the answer. And that felt terrible to me. I was just like, how could I have not <laughs> been more prepared for this? Luckily enough, I made it up, you know, with answering all the champagne questions correctly and like doing the service correctly and everything and getting a three ounce pour just right. And um, I think they were like, okay, she just has this like one blind spot. Their, their feedback to me on my sheet was to get more 
more familiar with cocktails and producers. And I was like, fair enough. The service portion was the reason I didn't go and take the advanced or try to take the advanced right away because I just felt like I'm not ready. I'm definitely not ready. Did you eventually go and take the advanced or did you just stop it certified? I stopped there for now. I haven't rolled it out. It hasn't felt like the right time. Like for a couple of years, I was just assuming the role of SOM GM, you know, wine director until COVID hit. And then when COVID hit, I was like, well, what even is this? I don't, I don't even know if restaurant is a thing for me going forward anymore. So like kind of just put the whole thing on, on back burner. I wouldn't roll it out. I feel a little bit more confident now than I did then about certain areas of study. So I feel like if I really hit the books, I would stand a chance. Do you think if you do decide to do it, that you'll do it with the court or would you pivot and do it with possibly WSET and kind of their level three, which is a, a similar kind of level. And I ask that mainly because we've had a decent amount of women sommeliers on the podcast and there is that giant thing out there that a few years ago there was the whole harassment thing and, and all that stuff with the court. So it turned a lot of people off. Some people have the opinion of it's still just an avenue for me to get where I want to go. So I should utilize that avenue if it's there. Some have the opinion of the only way you can truly affect change is if you are involved, bring change from the inside. And some have kind of a wait and see approach. So does that affect your thinking at all? It definitely did at the time when all that stuff was coming out. I was just like, oh, this is awful. Like what a mess. And I've been so fortunate to have such good, like encouraging male mentors and colleagues that I didn't even realize that it could be so gross. I like didn't even see. So yeah, definitely when all that was coming out, I was kind of surprised and just like, wow, this is like, I don't even know if I want to be affiliated with this anymore. I think they're still clawing back from that a little bit, you know, but they are trying to elevate women and, you know, give them voices and everything. So I I hope that it's on a good path now. But to answer your question, I, I haven't really thought about WSET. I think I'd be more apt to just go and do like the certified wine educator portion. Uh, I love to talk about wine. I love wine education. So I feel like that might be a good avenue for me. Um, I'm Not that there's not value in WSET. I know that's a really intensive, great program, but I just, I'm not already in it. I already have like my foot in these other two things. So I don't know if I start over somewhere else. Also during this time when you're doing this exam, but I think a little bit before it, you were working as a wine and spirits demonstrator for Tallgrass at some point, right? Like, what is that? That was honestly to keep me afloat until I found a job in Austin. It's the people you see like giving samples at grocery stores and wine shops. That's literally what it is. It's a, it's a contract job where you're just selling products, like trying to sell products to the public. Um, and it worked for me for a couple of months there because we didn't think we were going to stay in Austin. I was trying to get a job. I wasn't getting one right away. We had only signed a six month lease. And I was like, well, at this point, I don't even want to start a job because I'm not going to be here. So I was just like, I can just do this and make 20 bucks an hour and work as much as I want per week and pay my bills and like, we'll be out of here. So really it was just like a stay over thing, like delivering groceries or, I mean, it was just gig work. What eventually kind of leads to you leaving the Italian restaurant spot that you're at and you're there for six years, but then you kind of wind up as an inventory manager over at the Austin Wine Merchant. Take me through that kind of transition. How does all that kind of materialize and happen for you? There was a short period of time where I worked at the Italian restaurant and the Austin Wine Merchant. So I had a good relationship with the owner. He was also a 
really faithful like diner at the Italian restaurant. He always brought producers in there. You know, he but we had we had a good rapport. Um, after COVID hit, of course, everybody got turned upside down a little bit. Um, I stayed on at the restaurant. You know, got online ordering set up, got contactless, all this stuff. You know, just still doing the GM stuff, trying to sell the wine online, trying to sell the wine to go. Like it kind of reached a point where the restaurant was going to reopen, and I wasn't comfortable with the way it was going to reopen. I tried to like ride it out and have an influence, like a positive influence on it. But it just got to a point where I was like, I think this is where I maybe take a step back and just let the restaurant do what it needs to do. Because the owner had a very clear vision of what she wanted to happen. I was not quite with her. And I'm like, this doesn't lead to anything good. So we had a great relationship, ended on good terms. And I think that was the best time for me to exit. The Austin wine merchant is almost perpetually hiring. It's just like hard to get people to work in retail when you know, there's more exciting avenues in wine to pursue. So I reached out to the owner, John, and I was just like, I'm available. Like I'm available full time now. I'm not doing anything. At that time, I think it was like September, 2020. My husband and I were thinking about coming back to Ohio anyway. So I was, I was just kind of putting it out there. I'm like, well, if he needs help, I'll help him. But like, it was just sure, I'll come work for you. And he did need help. He needed a lot of help. So I ended up staying there and working through a lot of the different roles in the shop for another like full two years. I had a great relationship with the owner. I loved working with him. He's super old school, just like, I don't know how to describe John. He's very like staunchly traditional, but we shared this tiny office together for two years and it was so fun. Like I, I just learned so much from him. So it was a really good place to spend a little bit of time. And I got to put a dent in my lack of burgundy knowledge because the, the pretty much like 50% of the shop is burgundy. It was cool to be immersed in that and be like, okay, I get it. I understand now. <laughs> so also when you're there, I think they're named like one of the top five wine shops in the U.S. by Wine Enthusiast Magazine. I think it's like 2021. So when that happens, does that affect anything for the shop? Like do you guys see a natural increase in business because that comes out or is it just kind of every day-to-day normal and it's just a few more people in there yeah i can't say i noticed any sort of influx but the shop itself has been open for over 30 years i mean there is a very established clientele at that shop there's detailed records of their ordering history what they drink what they've bought what they've pre-ordered so the way that that shop sells wine is very very professional very specific like We'll email this guy and be like, hey, we're getting two cases of Davasat. How much of it do you want? You know, so I don't think I don't think the shop really needs any help in that way. It may have drawn attention to it on a national scale. We were getting, you know, orders from people in like New Jersey and Missouri or whatever. I mean, our inventory is available online and we'll gladly ship if it's legal. So like we, we were maybe getting a little bit more uh, across state line sales. So what ultimately led for you guys coming back to Columbus? Well, it felt like a homecoming a little bit. We had been talking about it for a long time. Again, we stayed in Austin a whole lot longer than we both thought we were going to. Uh, we didn't always know we would come right back to Ohio, but it, at the time, it just seemed like the right move. We had been away from, you know, my family's still here. We had been away from them for nine years, especially during the pandemic. That was difficult. We There was no traveling. There was, you know, it was like, it, it just kind of felt like, wouldn't it be nice for a little while if we if it wasn't such a hassle to have dinner with grandma or, or like reconnect with old friends. You know, we have some deep rooted connections here that we were missing. So just felt right, really. So over the course of that nine years, I'm sure you came back and visited since, you know, your family's in the area, but visiting for a couple of days or however long is different than living here 
day in, day out. When you kind of fully relocated back here, did you notice any great changes in the city from kind of like when you left? Like maybe you saw bits and pieces here when you were visiting, but once you had been here for a couple months, were you surprised by anything that the city had evolved to? The biggest change is the short north. When I lived here, you know, which was 10 years ago at this point, it wasn't built up like that. I mean, they, they were trying, they were working on it. Uh, but I took a walk down it the other day. I was going to lunch and it, it was, I was just like, this is unrecognizable. It's so strange. Like, I don't even know which cross street I'm at. I don't recognize any of these buildings. So that was really the, the biggest difference. I haven't been out to explore every little nook of the city's culinary scene yet. So I still feel kind of new there. I don't really know what it is, like what Columbus has. I'm try- still trying to figure all of that out. But as far as just like infrastructure and building, definitely the short north is like not the same place at all. <laughs> so when you get back, what happens then? Because eventually you wind up at Commune. So how did that happen? Joe is an old friend. And, you know, I remember walking through Commune with him and Brooke when they were building it, like in 2018, when it was under construction. The way they talked about it was very idyllic. Like they, they just had this like very serene idea of what their restaurant is going to be and what it stands for. So it was cool from the beginning to see that he had a really clear vision for it. When I came back into town and, you know, was interviewing and kind of looking around, I didn't know if I was going to do maybe distribution or, you know, other another retail or restaurant gig. I just met with Joe a couple of times over a drink and kind of evolved naturally. I think I don't know if he was necessarily looking for a general manager and a sommelier. He's not like he had a job post out. But it seemed like he needed a little bit of help just with the the operations of the restaurant. And I can fill that gap. Like, you know, these are all things I've done before. I'd love to get involved with a wine program that's a little bit more diverse. Uh, One of the conversations we had was the difference between like pairing a wine list with 18 pastas, you know, versus pairing a wine list with like very, very diverse vegetarian food flavors. And that was interesting to me too. I'm just like, this is like, it sounds like a challenge and I'm kind of into it. Like um, it happened kind of organically, honestly. With kind of the vegetarian aspect and, you know, you've been there for I think nine months or so probably by now, close to a year coming up. When you first kind of get involved, were there any unexpected challenges with trying to pair with vegetarian cuisine like that? Or did you kind of already based on knowledge that you had already accumulated, kind of know where you were going to go with it and just kind of dialing it in? You have to take it dish by dish, especially at Commune, because it's hard to say like, oh, vegetables pair with Italian white. It's just, it's too much of a broad stroke. It's like, what's the sauce? What's the seasoning? Is it spicy? Is it sweet? You know, there's all these other elements. So the challenge is getting red wines in there sometimes. Like when when we did our, our New Year's Eve, like, prefix tasting. We had a a five course tasting with a wine pairing and I could only use reds for one dish. And for a lot of consumers, they're like, oh, I don't like white wine. It's too sweet. Or I only drink red wine. And that's challenging because a guest was actually the first one to bring it to my attention when the fourth course came up and I poured them their their red. They're like, oh, finally, a, a red wine. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I wasn't thinking about the consumer experience of white versus red or what they usually drink. Like, I'm literally just trying to pick the best wine to showcase the food. After that, I became a little bit more cognizant of like, okay, if I absolutely had to do a red with this dish to have more balance to the flight, what would it be? How could it work instead of just going to the the best white option? Like what, you know, 
not what I would drink, but like, what would somebody else want to drink? And maybe I should have a white and a red just ready for this dish in case they do have a bias or a preference. Kind of leads me into my next question for you. When you arrive at Commune, there's already a wine program, right? So how do you approach that in tweaking the existing program, the offerings that there are to put your spin on it, to evolve it without alienating loyalists who have come to expect certain styles or certain types of wine on the list? Like, how do you take that on? I have never taken a list and just completely changed it. I think any venue you're at, that's going to be alienating, not just to the guests, but to the staff, because now they don't have their go-to wines that they sell. So uh, the way I approached it at La Traviata and at Commune was I just looked at sales data. I was like, okay, let me look at the last three months of sales. Like, what are the velocities on these wines? What are the ones we can get rid of first? What are the ones we definitely want to keep for a while? We kept the glass list around the same size, but added to the orange section. And then we made like a whole bottle list that Commune wasn't really advertising at the time. They, they had quite, actually quite a bit of wine in the cellar, you know, quote unquote, that they were just sitting on. So we were able to use a lot of that. I tasted through a bunch of it and I'm like, this is good. Like we can, you know, we can work with this. So the first couple months was phasing things out that weren't moving adding things to the list to clear them out of the cellar, and then just kind of item by item choosing new selections. All of those things take time. Um, The new selections in particular, because every market is different. And I hadn't worked in Ohio in not, you know, nine, 10 years, and I'm not familiar with what we have here. Like I'm looking for producers that we don't have in Ohio, you you know, so I, I had to get through a lot of different tastings and just kind of learn, like, what are my options, you know, pouring through distributors portfolios. So yeah, that definitely took some time, but in probably didn't even start really digging into it until after I was there a month or so, because as it, as the GM aspect, you kind of get in, you want to get to know the staff, you know, you want to just see how the restaurant works and make sure it's, you're not going to disrupt anything. You want to keep it running, you know, the way it's running and build rapport. Like that was all the number one thing that got done when I got there. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming with being a GM at Commune, the biggest challenge is probably the weather because if the patio is open, it basically doubles the size of the restaurant. Is that true or is it something else? It is. Currently a challenge. Yeah. I've been interviewing and hiring. Like we're trying to beef up the staff so that yes, when the restaurant doubles in size, we're ready for that. And then, yeah, if the air quality is like it is today and we, you know, it's a beautiful sunny day, but now we can't open the patio. Like the air quality is crap, you know, people are depending on those shifts and now I can't give them to them. So that is very challenging. And I I take it really seriously because I don't want to interrupt somebody's expected Pay. And the weather is so unpredictable in Ohio, that definitely is hard. Uh, the other aspect of that is our kitchen is finite in space. If we have a kitchen sized and staffed to handle 45 section restaurant and all of a sudden it's an 85, you know, 85 person seating, how is that going to go? Is it going to go okay? Like, are we, you know, is everybody going to be in the weeds and like want to leave? Uh, so that that is stressful as well. We've had Joe and and Matt both on previously. So give me your best Matt Harper story so far with with working with him. Oh, gosh, that's hard. What I will say about Matt is that he is perpetually calm. He's like the Matthew McConaughey of chefs. 
Like he just, he just doesn't get worked up about anything. He's always in a good mood. He's very chill. Like it's, it's really apparent that he's kind of a Southern guy. <laughs> uh, and I like that about them because there's some, obviously there's some chefs out there <laughs> that can be a little intense. Give me your best Joe Galati story working with him so far. I know you knew him before, but like just the work environment now working with him. Like Joe is very much like me in terms of being type A and wants everything to be perfect. So if we're setting up the dining room together, we'll walk behind each other and readjust everything the other person did. <laughs> like <laughs> the tables are 16 inches apart. I've gone through with a tape measure, made them 16 inches apart, but like he'll come through and eyeball them and just like move everything around. <laughs> so in one way we work really well together because like by the time we open for service, like this place is ready to go. It's so perfect. But yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing. I haven't worked with somebody quite like that before where we're both just like up here trying to make sure all the specs are on point. Would you say you were early, right on time or late to natural wine? Commune has a big natural wine program that is, it gets misrepresented, I guess, natural wine does, is people think it's something that outlier, where it's really just about the way, you know, things are grown and farm and processed. So where would you kind of fall? Because for some people, they're kind of against natural wine. They're just like, hey, whatever's the best out there, however it's made, whatever. Some people are really dedicated to it. And that's kind of all they want to drink. So where do you kind of fall in that? It's an interesting discussion. For the first part of your question, professionally, probably late to natural wine, working at a place like the Austin Wine Merchant that is just really rooted in tradition and classic producers, styles, vintages, the natural wine selection was small. Like there were other shops in Austin that were dedicated to just this like very specific category and we kind of covered everything else. So while it was coming up and happening, it I was just kind of like, eh, whatever. Like, you know, that does, doesn't apply to me. I don't need to worry about it. Um, so, so late because I thought this was going to be over by now. I really thought natural wine was going to be a flash in the pan in its current state. How, how do I want to say that? It's such a touchy subject because it just goes so deep. But like the idea of organic, biodynamic, you know, sustainable producers, people that are very low intervention, that's not new. And that isn't going to go away and it shouldn't. Like we need people to be farming and producing that way. But for somebody to come in and ask me if a wine is natural and it, and it be like purchase it, the conversation isn't just yes or no. It's like, what does natural wine mean to you? What are you looking for? Like, you know, I'll get you to what you're looking for, but we have to define it better than somebody just saying the word natural. Like it's just such a loose term. So that is challenging. I will say that we have a good mix of of both on the wine list at Commune. We have the quote unquote natural wines that are trendy, you know, just like young California producers, co-fermenting everything in the same bag, you know, just doing some weird stuff. And then we have really classic producers that are making wine in an ancient way where they're just like, you know, dry farming, doing organic or biodynamic practices, uh, natural yeast, like all of these things that like are encompassed in natural wine but they just have different labels. You know what I mean? They just they just don't choose to do the super trendy thing. They're doing the more traditional thing. So I've tried to keep it balanced. Again, we talked about alienating staff and guests, and that's never something I want to do. If people come to commune and they're used to seeing a certain type of wine, I want them to still have access to it, but I also want them to see these other things. We're, you know, we're trying to like make everybody grow as a consumer. With kind of building out the wine list, 
what's your methodology? And it, you kind of touched on it before with kind of how you structured the buy the glass pour section and kind of tweaks to that, but have any sort of goals or, or anything that you were looking at when kind of building out and revamping the wine list for commune? Yeah, I was definitely looking for diversity. I wanted people to have access to more than they were used to having access to on a natural wine list. I, I wanted them to see other options, um, whether that be different varieties, different regions, different styles of production. I was trying really to cover <laughs> for a while. I was like, trying to cover every country that produces wine. I'm like, let's get them all on there. I want every, you know, um, that that's hard because you also have to weigh quality. Like you don't just want to put something on the list because it's from Chile or something like it has to taste good too. So, but yeah, diversity was a big driving force in the wine list. Um, having something for everybody too. You know, I don't necessarily think that a really full bodied cab is appropriate for what we're serving, but at the end of the day, we want to get people into the glass or bottle of wine that they want to drink, like not what we think they should be drinking. So we definitely have those things. We have those fuller bodied reds that are, you know, oaked and tannic and all that stuff. And then we have super light, spritzy, you know, chocolatey whites, like kind of have the whole gamut. For everybody, there's usually a, a wine region that they kind of gravitated towards, you know, when they were first getting into wine. What is that for you? What region? Uh, first getting into wine, it was definitely Tuscany. Oh, actually, like all of Italy. I, I've always loved Italian wine. I love the rusticity of it. It feels really raw, like, you know, acidity, tannins. It's just like the, the coolest red wines. Um, I, I mean, I still really love Italian wines, but I've ventured out quite a bit. Currently, I just, I love an island wine. I, I you know, Sicily, the Canary Islands, like Corsica, like I, I love the influence of the sea on, on vines and kind of what that does to the end and uh, flavor profile. Is there a region that you're excited to kind of focus on in the near future? Like something you haven't really touched on like before it was kind of burgundy but then you wound up working at a wine shop that mostly did burgundy so i think you're probably up to speed there but is there any other regions that you know you kind of look at and you're like well, i wonder what's kind of going on over there like that might be exciting to kind of explore next um kind of for the, all the same reasons bordeaux i don't get to drink a lot of bordeaux either I've, at least not anymore i mean i got to taste quite a bit when i was at the merchant but uh you know there's no use for bordeaux on an italian wine list and there's really no use for Bordeaux on a vegetarian wine list. So it's, it's another one of those um, regions. It's like, this is very important and I still don't fully understand it. So yeah, if anybody's got a Bordeaux tasting group. Are you able to enjoy a dinner out when you guys get to go out or do you compulsively check the wine list to see what's on there? I'm able to enjoy a dinner. I can shut off from what's happening around me. I do check the wine list. I do look at menus. I look at layouts, prices, like if, you know, another restaurant has the same glass pour as I do. Well, what are they charging for it? You know, are we being competitive? Are you just, there's a preliminary, like sit down, get that all out of my system type thing. But then, yeah, I can definitely shut off and just enjoy and spend night out. What wine region do you think is the next one to explode? So people have said, you know, Mexico, Michigan, certain specific areas of the Pacific Northwest and Oregon and and Finger Lakes and stuff, but is there a region that you see that you kind of just keep hearing about and people seem to be pretty curious about and like that could be the next one that all of a sudden is the thing for five, 10 years? Yeah. I mean, domestically, I think the Finger Lakes and also part you know, Virginia, like Virginia's wine scene is not bad. Like they have a pretty good typography for, for what they're growing. 
So yeah, domestic, those two areas, uh, going back to Burgundy, I think Aransi, like the northern most part that's making red is, is going to become more and more important with climate change. I've had some Mexican wine, but I don't know the longevity of farming. I, it just seems like it, it's already so hot. I, I don't know what's going to happen down there. But yeah, I think more northerly regions are going to become more and more important. Anything upcoming professionally with Commune you guys have going on? Uh, well, we just rolled out our summer menu, which is I'm really excited about. It's so, so good. This, you know, the last week or two have been getting some reds on the list that are going to pair up with the dish as well. Um, we have been doing some events here and there as well. We've been doing like pasta nights that everybody's super excited about. Where we just do like one night of a, a whole new menu, different pasta selections. Those have been going over really well. So I think we're going to explore other types of cuisine to kind of do the same thing and, and get people interested and give people a reason to come in outside of our already delicious, you know, regular menu and uh, some new options. I would love to see us do a Spanish chat this night. I've been pushing that. Yeah, I've been like subtly pushing that to, to Matt and Joe for a while. So there's nothing on the books currently, but we do have a lot of dates carved out to to work on things like that. Personally, no, I don't have anything planned. I would love to get back to Austin soon for a visit and see all my old colleagues and eat some good food and soak up some 110 degree days. We got a handful of questions left. Some of these we ask everybody who comes on the podcast and there's a couple others in between that get left behind. Next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, Chef Matthew Meeker, who is actually kind of doing just some farming out kind of in the Dallas area right now. But he left behind for you, what is the most influential meal you've ever had? It would have at Elena's with my then boyfriend. He proposed later that evening, but that's not really, the meal is the, the focus here. So neither of us came from a family that was invested in culinary at all. Like we were very meat and potatoes, everything on the plates, the same color. Like that's how, that's what we understood food to be. So Elena's to me was the first meal I had where I was like, why doesn't every green bean I've ever had taste like this one? Like, why does this one taste different? It was just like, it, it really eye-opening that I was missing a ton. Uh, so yeah, that, that would be it. Elena's and that was like circa 2006. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Since we don't know uh, what aspect of the industry they're in, I would just be curious to know what their favorite part about their craft is. Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what was the last wine you had that made you feel something? had a ship to me a handful of bottles from my harvest year at motion which was 2013 so after it you know sat in barrel for 11 months and they bottled it and everything i bought some and i was sitting on a, a handful of bottles at the house and i had one left that i was just like you can't do this to wine it, it's not meant to like look at it's meant you have to open it and drink it but i i was trying to you know save it for a special occasion or something but i opened it by myself on my back porch during the pandemic it just transported me back to that like much happier time where I was in knee deep, literally in grapes, you know, at harvest, like making this thing that's in front of my glass right now. So that I'll go with that. I'd say that was it. Last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, a nice compare and contrast here across all the episodes for the listeners. But first one, who was the biggest influence on your career thus far? Definitely John Rennick at The Wine Merchant. What is your desert island wine? Well, if you're, I mean, if you're on an island, you should have an island wine. So <laughs> Etna Bianco, like a volcanic wine. I don't know, something with good acidity, but enough, enough body to make you feel like you're getting some sustenance as well. I mean, if you are on a desert island, of course. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I usually give 
person gets stuck at the airport, you know, you guys are closed. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You kind of point them in this direction. I'm still getting to know Columbus's dining scene and it's been, it's been tough to get to like the the better known higher end places because I'm usually working. But I will say that I've had good experience at the crest. And I think if people are looking for that like semi-farm to table experience, that would fit the bill pretty well. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So a place you have not visited yet, you still want to get to. And then also a restaurant you have not dined at, but you still want to get to one day. Probably anywhere in Spain. I've never been to Spain. I really, really want to go. My husband wants to go. If we're ever somehow independently wealthy, I think we'll retire there just to explore. Love to see that country. This is pretty boring, but Bucket List Restaurant is actually in Austin, Texas. And I lived there for nine years and never went to it. But I, I've always wanted to eat at Jeffrey's. It's Their wine program is stellar. There was one year that at Texom, all three like first, second, and third place Psalms were from Jeffrey's. Like It's just like a very elevated wine experience. Uh, and I, I never went there as a guest. I went there to do like tastings or classes or anything, but I never went there to just like eat dinner. And I regret that. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? There's two things. Uh, La Traviata was a hundred year old building. It's like one of the last like old buildings in downtown Austin. There was a server who was holding a tray of glasses and the hardwood floor underneath of her just like gave out. It, <laughs> it just went down to the subfloor. So she just like fell through the floor, but she was holding it. She didn't drop a single glass. It was, it was classic. It was just like, and served them. <laughs> uh, so that was pretty crazy. There was another night where a really, really large snake came out of a produce container. Uh, that was wild. And I, I'm an animal lover, but snakes are not my bag. So I had to like scream and run at that, at that time. But yeah, that was pretty wild too. Did you guys have to call animal control to come get it? No, our dishwasher was brave and he took care of it. We were pretty close to the river uh, in downtown. I think he took it down to the river. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that, you know, is unhealthy, but you just can't help yourself. Yes, it's embarrassing, but it is turkey pepperoni. Oh, I love it. I, it's so disgusting. But like if, if there's a bag of just cheap turkey pepperoni in the refrigerator, I'll snack on it all day. I can't stop. I will always go for something savory over something sweet. Same with like olives, pickles. Like I can just eat them by the handful. Wine recommendations. So we broke this into four categories. So $20 and under, $50 and under, $100 and under, and then 100 and over, no limit. Basically zero to that number. You know, if all four that you recommend are under $20, that's fine. That can fit the category. So what would you recommend to the person that's interested in wine, drinking wine, but you know doesn't always know what to grab, whether it's grocery store shelf or wine shop or whatever, start with zero to 20, $20 and under. If I'm trying to get somebody interested in wine, most people start with things that are, I don't want to say sweet because I hate to use that word for wine, but a little bit riper, like things that are a little bit friendlier on your palate. So for whites, I would probably go with an off-dry Riesling or Shannon, like something from the Loire Valley for the Shannon and maybe Alsace for the Riesling. Um, I think I think those are really pleasant and agreeable to a lot of people and they don't realize it. Like I think everybody loves Riesling, but nobody knows they love Riesling. So in the, in the 20 to $25 range, I would probably look for um, an off-dry Riesling as a, a really nice summer white and also pretty food friendly. Up to 50 bucks. Going back to Spain, I love Priorat. I think Priorat is a region that I don't see a lot of exposure for. Like you see a ton of Rioja everywhere, uh, but I, I love the mineral aspect of Priorat. And it's also really, really generous in fruit. So somebody that's new isn't going to find it so austere uh, that they can't drink it. Like it's very drinkable, but it's complex. And you can find definitely some 
uh, around, you know, 30, 40, 50 bucks. Up to a hundred. Up to a hundred. You got to go burgundy. I mean, up to a hundred, you can definitely get something uh, from bone. That's going to be really classic that you can either drink now or sit on or save for a special occasion. And it's, it's going to be complex and, you know, unlike any other Pinot you'll probably have. Over a hundred, no limit. If somebody's like, you know, gives you a credit card and they're like, Hey, go find me some the coolest thing you can. What are you recommending? Yeah. I don't know. This is hard for me because it's not a category that I participate in that much, but I would probably do bubbles. I mean, I would probably do uh, a Tete de Gove champagne or something like I've actually, I think Sir Winston Churchill is like 250 bucks, but it is one of the best champagnes I've ever had. So if you're like really baller, <laughs> want to drop some money on that, the Paul Roger, like Tete de Gove would be a good one. What is one book focused on beverage, hospitality that you think everyone should read? I recommended this recently. I really love Vignette by Jane Lopes, or it might be Lopez. I'm actually not sure how you pronounce her last name, but super informative, but it's broken down into really small sections with illustrations. I think anybody can read that book and find it enjoyable, whether they're very early or very late in their career. That's a really good one. If you're really, really studying, having an Oxford companion to wine in the house is crucial as well, because it's kind of laid out just by words. So you can look up vineyard names, you know, varieties, regions, producers, and it'll just be all alphabetically indexed. So it's really easy to find what you're looking for and learn about it. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody was or is. Uh, If you were, is there a moment episode scene that you still kind of think of and and remember? Or if you weren't, is there somebody else who was on TV, whether it's uh, Gordon Ramsay or Emeril or Julia Child, somebody who's, you know, on TV culinary personality that you kind of gravitated towards when you were working in restaurants and getting into it? Unfortunately, I have to say no. I don't watch a lot of TV. I definitely don't watch a lot of reality TV and there's, I, I see no problem with it. I'm just not that interested because of my personality type, I'm much more prone to watch something that's education based. Like I'll find, I'll find something on YouTube about blind tasting or, you know, I'll, I, I very rarely just sit down and watch TV <laughs> and chefs doing chef stuff. <laughs> Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Um, pretty much nowhere. I think, <laughs> I think I said before we started that I do like a level of anonymity in my life. Um, so even having this conversation now is a little bit outside the box for me, but I, I am on Instagram at Andrea M underscore Cbus. I'd say my biggest online presence that I focus on is LinkedIn just because it is a career based website. And that's kind of where I, I put my, my effort uh, for putting myself out there. And I think that might be it. And then obviously follow the commune account too, as well on Instagram. It's uh, at commune restaurant. There's an underscore in between commune and restaurant. And then you guys are open Tuesday through Saturday, or is it Monday? Monday through Saturday now. Yeah, we've been up Monday since uh, I don't know, at least the first of the year. I think reservations are on Resi. Yes. Tuesday nights is the Tuesday night flights that you do. Yeah. That's been fun. Uh, it's been fun to get Joe in on those as well. I feel like he's really enjoying those and developing his palate and everything. But yeah, two whites and two reds, uh, two ounce pours. And if you you know want to try to guess what they are, we're happy to pour them blind. And if you're more comfortable just trying four really awesome classic wines, we can tell you what they are. Awesome. Yeah, and you guys just rolled out the summer menu. So that'll be going for the next couple months too as well. But Commune's one of our favorite restaurants to go to. It's There's not a whole lot of vegetarian spots. I mean, we're not vegetarians, but there's not a whole lot really in Columbus. But I think Commune, even if it wasn't vegetarian, you know, didn't have that label, it'd still be 
you know, one of the best restaurants we have. And, and that obviously goes to speak with the rankings that came out last year too, as well. There's other people that feel that way, which is great to see. So yeah, we'll be seeing you soon at some point. I'm going to try the new menu for sure. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for the invitations. Appreciate your time. A big thanks again to Andrea for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her day to jump on and talk about her career and wine and joining Commune and everything that she's kind of tinkered with and future plants and all that stuff. We do get a lot of people that don't necessarily enjoy doing kind of press things and talking about themselves and being interviewed. So, you know, we have had a bunch of people on that are a little kind of apprehensive. And and then once things kind of get rolling, they realize it's, you know, a safe space and we're not out to get them or anything like that, or, and uh, really just want to highlight their expertise and what they're doing. Appreciate Andrea and others, you know, for trusting us, you know, and sitting down and doing a long form interview without getting questions ahead of time and just putting faith in us to kind of make the best episode and best interview possible, which is what we aim to do. And we want them to have a great experience and we want it to be kind of the gold standard for them. So whenever they do the next press thing that they're doing, they're kind of like, oh yeah, it wasn't the Spoon Mob interview. Like that was still the most fun I ever had being interviewed. And that's kind of what we aim to do. So appreciate everybody who's trusted us and come on the podcast and let us kind of do our thing and not ask the, what questions are you going to ask and what do you want me to say and like all this stuff and, and just kind of believes in us and let us kind of do our thing so appreciate everyone and um yeah you can follow andrea on instagram at andrea m underscore cbus and then also follow commune at commune underscore restaurant uh, on instagram you can follow us too as well at spoon mob check out our website spoonmob.com and then make sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast on whatever preferred podcast platform that you use to consume podcasts but again thank you for everyone's continued support writing in questions comments feedback which you can do through the website portal or just shoot us an email spoonmob at yahoo.com you can find us uh, and reach out to us but appreciate all that stuff that's being written into us uh, recommendations requests for recommendations requests for interviews like all this stuff so it's cool to see all that stuff come through um, from people that have been listening, kind of following along what we're doing. So appreciate everybody who's been listening. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support, continuing to download the new episodes, uh, continuing to reshare the episodes on social media when we tag stuff and all that. Um, you know, it helps us out a lot. So we appreciate that. And continues to grow. And uh, if you're relatively new, only a couple episodes in, or maybe this was your first episode, you know, thank you for listening and, and taking some time out of your day to basically listen to something that you really don't know what is going on. And, you know, we don't want you to feel late to the party or anything like that. So, you know, we always encourage everybody to check out the back catalog episodes, but, you know, hopefully you enjoyed this episode and be back for more. And, you know, thank you for taking a chance on us and, and spending, you know, an hour or so of your time listening to a, a podcast that maybe you didn't know much about going into. So, but as always, thank you for everyone's continued support and spreading the word and everything. And we'll talk to you guys next week on Thursday with a brand new episode.